everybody. Welcome to Commercial Construction Elevate the Industry podcast series hosted by yours truly, Dave Presida. Thanks so much for joining us today. The purpose of the podcast is to help anyone in commercial construction from owner to intern understand the business better, maybe see through the eyes of others, and hopefully develop a better path for you forward in the business, wherever that might take you. Uh, in uh, our first season, we've had 12 episodes now, and we've we've interviewed several industry leaders from curtain wall to drywall to uh, insulation and related products, prefabrication specialists, even building science experts. They were great stories and I hope you enjoyed them. We also heard from me through my personal experience, uh, a couple episodes, one was how to start a business, one was how to sell a business. And today we're gonna talk about how to develop business, business development, something that touches everybody in the business, uh, and we're going to hit several phases of it, but it might be my favorite subject to talk about. So as a backdrop, what qualifies me to talk about business development? Well, you know, I started my own business. I built it. I sold it. I've worked for huge public and private companies. I've had good bosses and I've had bosses that probably aren't so good. Uh, I've been involved with great initiatives, things that have really changed the industry. And I've also been involved with things that have fell flat on their face. You know, in each case, I've learned a lot about how people, managers, uh, investors, uh, and, and employees see companies and see business development. So I've seen a lot of, of different management styles and I'm gonna share some of those with you. In my career, I've personally sold over a, a billion with a B. Um, dollars worth of construction contracts. So, you know, I've seen I've seen a lot of different people, a lot of ways to do it. We're gonna share some of that with you too. So whether you're an owner in operations, sales, marketing, administration, IT, doesn't matter. Business development impacts you and you impact business development. So what is business development? It's defined by Investopia as any idea, initiative or activity aimed toward making a business better. Now that is really general. If you were to ask me 25 years ago, what is business development? I would have said um, sales, maybe sales and marketing. And I wasn't, I wouldn't be wrong, but I've only have ca capture a piece of that because business development, the way I would define it today is developing your business from the outside, which means which sales and marketing and getting jobs, getting revenue. That's a big piece because without that, nothing else happens. But there's a lot more than that. Business development also includes developing your business internally to support those sales. And we're gonna get into those aspects of business development. Um, and, and I think we can all agree that, that today, if a business is not moving forward, it's fallen behind. So business development, I feel is divided into four initiatives, into four baskets. Number one would be strategic planning, developing a master plan and analyzing results. Number two, revenue generation. You need sales. Number three, field execution. When you get the sales, you've got to execute the work. And then you need administrative support, which is number four, that's payroll, uh, accounts payable, IT, HR, and so on. You know, if you look at the four baskets, it's almost like four tires on a car. If they're not in sync and they're not aligned, you're gonna make it down the highway, but it's gonna be a bumpy ride. Now, if one of those four key areas is flat and you had a flat tire, you're not going anywhere. So there are 10 basic parts within these four baskets. And 
I don't have time to go through all those in today's episode, but in future episodes, we're gonna drill down and each one will have its own. So we're gonna really dig deep. Uh, but let's get in today to what a good business development plan looks like. So let's start with the master plan, number one. It's the most underrated step in the BD process. In my episode number four, starting a business, I asked the most important question and it is why? Why are you doing it? You know, the same tr holds true for companies of all ages and sizes. The question is, where do you want to go? Begin with the end in mind. That was a quote by author Stephen Covey. He wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. And if you haven't read Stephen Covey, you should. Uh, what it's saying is you should start all your activities knowing where you want it to lead you. Sounds basic, but some companies base their success on one thing. Did we make money? Now, making money is, I guess, why you're in business. There's a lot of good other things that we should be counting too. How about this? If you made money, great. Did you ask yourself if you gained a market share? Did you develop strategic partnerships, improve your staff, develop new relationships? Did you grow your client base? Are you in a better position this year than last year to make money? Are you staying consistent with your master plan? You know, I call it the mysterious master plan. And I want to ask you a question. Would you agree with this statement? A business is more likely to reach its goals if it knows what the goals are, right? All major decisions, sales initiatives, staff, operational issues, uh, key strategic partnerships, all should be revolve around what the master plan is. Here's an example, small business, let's say a $5 million business, has a three-year master plan and, and in sales, they want their revenue to grow by 30%. That's 10% a year. After one year, they've only, they only see 5% growth. So now, because they have the end in mind, they can go back and say, okay, we're behind. What are we gonna do? Either we're gonna change our master plan, which, you know, sometimes you have to, or we've gotta grow the business differently because what we're doing now isn't gonna get us there. So you make that decision. If you, if you plan on growing it, then you gotta say, okay, what can I do to make up the 25% in the next two years? So either you're gonna increase your lines of business in the same market, and by the way, it's a whole nother subject, which is a great one, uh, or you might actually grow geographically. So without the master plan, you might, or your partners, you might never ask yourself that question, uh, but because you had a master plan, you will. Picture this, you're on a ship, right? And the captain comes over the intercom and says, hey, uh, everybody, our attention, please. I've got good news and bad news. The good news is we're making great time. The bad news is we're hopelessly lost. Now, this describes a lot of companies today, unfortunately. You know, um, do you own a business like that? Do you work for one? Have, have you established a master plan? Has your company established a master plan? So owners, managers, staff members embrace the idea of a guiding principle, a guiding plan that will dictate your moves between now and then. So personally speaking, I've got lots of experience with this. You know, when I started in business, and you can hear that in my profile, but uh, I just wanted a, a better lifestyle, more challenging uh, experiences, and I certainly got that. But when I bought out my partners, then I had debt service, and I couldn't, I couldn't take care of the debt service with the existing company I had, so I had to make some decisions. So I decided to increase the lines of business in my immediate market. That was one of those guys I just described. 
and it worked, right? We, we took care of the debt service. Um, you know, some say I was lucky. You know, I define luck as when opportunity and preparedness meet. I knew where it was that I wanted to go. So when someone say it was lucky when an opportunity arose, I saw it because I was looking for it. I seized on it and I, and I maximized it. So, uh, you know, I've worked for many companies, including my own. The biggest challenge, now this may sound crazy to some, but the biggest challenge is sitting down and planning your future. Why do companies resist doing that? Ask yourself that, you know, because they're too busy. That's what you're going to hear. It's a common excuse. Uh, but, you know, a plan defines desired results. What does that mean? That means now it's measurable, which enables accountability, which many people just aren't comfortable with. So if, if you're an owner and you don't have a master plan, sit down with your key people or yourself or whomever and make one. Okay. And if you miss it, that's okay. If you set the bar way low, you're going to hit it. But so what? If you set the bar high and you miss by a little bit, man, you're going to be better off than you are without one. So in commercial construction, and I have to generalize here because I don't have time to break it down into the nitty gritty, but we're going to talk about the differences in business development and strategic planning in particular between a small company that might be under five million a year in revenue um, to a medium company, maybe five to 20, to a large company might be 20 million to 100 million a year. And then big national companies between, you know, 100 million and 500 million or even public companies that are into the B to the billions. But it's all different, but it, it's, it's important. So like if you're a small or a medium sized business owner, say zero to 20 million, most of your strategic planning will be done internally by you, the owner. You might have an accountant involved or, um, you know, maybe a key executive involved, but whatever you do, right, make a plan, a written plan, not just, hey, we like to do this this year, it's too easy. A written plan and commit to it. Now, if you're a large company, uh, there's, a, there's a big difference now because you're dealing with so, so much money, other people's money a lot of times, and uh, it, it's impacting many, many lives. So large company strategic planning is usually done by an executive committee, which would include the owner, maybe an outside person or two, and key operators in your business. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's a, a really good thing to be able to bounce ideas off of people who understand the business as well as people from the outside who see it from a different perspective. You know, uh, family businesses, for example, uh, small, medium, or large, they're, they're all there. You would think that most of them would just say, look, let's, uh, and I've been involved with some, let's let the train run. It's run well to date, why change it? Well, that, that's their choice. But uh, I think, you know, if you look at the episode where I interviewed Vic and Pete Cornelia, they're from um, TSI, Wall Systems Inc. and it's a two generational thing. So they had to do a succession plan and it's tedious to do a succession plan, but they did it. They did it together. They stuck to it. And, you know, look at the episode and you'll see really, really cool results, not just for the guy who's getting out of the business, but every for everyone that follows on because they took the time to plan. So public companies, big, big, pub, even that, even big national companies, 
have active boards of directors. You know, you can talk about a $50 million company, a family-owned business, they probably don't have a board, or they might have a board, but they never meet. And even if they do meet, there aren't minutes. So different situation. They can still plan, but public companies have active boards of directors. Board members get paid. They get paid to protect the investment of people, of the investors, right? Uh, and they're, they're hired as board members to help lead the company uh, into a brighter future. Now, they're typically outsiders with, with varying business experiences, uh, but ultimately they are in charge of accountability for the CEO, the president, the CFO, and everybody uh, down below. I know I was involved firsthand with a board, a new board for a new public company worth three and a half billion dollars. They were sharp, but they had one thing in mind. What are our next quarter results? So there were there was planning. There was maybe too much planning. I'm not saying this is the best way to go. I'm saying this way is the way it is. Sometimes you might sacrifice today's results for tomorrow's results. That's not so much in a public company. You know, I'll leave you with this as far as, as strategic planning. If you're in the business, no matter what stage, no matter what role you have, you should find out if your company has a master plan, right? Ask your boss and your boss might say yes, but you know, I'm in the, the sales division and our goals are here, 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 that's good. If he can't tell you that or his boss or the owner can't tell you that, that's a problem. If you get no response to your question, it's one of two things. Either they don't think you're worth the answer or they don't have one. Neither is good. If that's the case, um, don't panic. But you should really consider you know, what you're doing and who you're doing it with. Because when things are good, everybody's fine. When things are bad, it's the companies that plan that survive and thrive. So I think we can all agree on this. Companies that fail to plan plan to fail. Don't be one of them. Guten Tag. Anyway, you'll get that in a minute. I've been in the air battery business for 20 plus years uh, from when it was a single asphaltic peel and stick impermeable membrane to what it is today. It's a big part of, of the building science. The business has changed. There are several manufacturers in it, but I choose today to deal with Dorkin, a German-based company. Not only are they competitively priced, their technical support is great, and mainly, I can always count them, they're there when I need them, in the field or during the bid. The biggest single differentiator between Dorkin and other manufacturers is they have a simple system. An example, on a previous job, uh, we have five different products to do the same thing that Dorkin gives me with two products. So Dorkin, I thank you for that. My uh, workers thank you, my clients thank you. I would urge you to check Dorkin out at their website, dorken.com. That's dorken.com. So the number two basket or tire, if you will, in a car is sales and marketing. Right, revenue generation. After all, you need sales because without sales, none of the rest matters. Um, sales, you know, could be from lead generation, sales calls, bid meetings, estimating, scope reviews, developing proposals, follow up, 
post bid meetings, you know, they, these are sales items that are related specifically to jobs. Marketing, on the other hand, you know, some people say sales and marketing like it's the same thing. It's not. There's two distinctly different topics. Um, and in a future episode, we're going to have a marketing specialist on because we're going to talk about everything from branding and all that. That's important no matter what business you're in. Uh, but think of marketing as activities that ultimately support sales, right? And we said developing brand, increasing brand awareness, um, you know, things that, that increase your chance of being chosen by a customer, things that differentiate you. Now you might do some of that, you know, in a, in a, in a proposal, but most of it is coming from marketing. Uh, marketing includes your company name. Now, you know, I've, I've always had like really basic company names. Right, commercial insulation contractors. Yeah, prefab. It doesn't matter. Your company name should describe, or it should be easy to recognize what you do. Your logo. Now, how simple is that? Your logo. It matters. Taglines. Do you have taglines? Uh, email signature lines. If you have a big company, they all better be the same. Right? They need to. Your promotional literature. Most of all, most of all, how do you present yourself to your staff? and the outside world because people will do what you do not what you say now marketing drives new business to you and helps keep keep them coming back think about a new restaurant a good marketing program will increase brand awareness right it'll peak interest for people to come in and what happens next the sale that you sell food you know your business market promotes what you do most importantly it's the benefit of the buyer what should be marketed to people is that they can trust you and maybe that's a differentiator between you and your competitors. You know, not so long ago, I was, I was part of a meet and greet with a new client and the owners of this specific business talked for maybe 20 minutes about their company and everything they said was factual. 20 minutes about the jobs they did, the things they did, all. And they probably could have cut it down into five, right? They were missing a point. So when I got on that call, I said, so you know we have a rich history, but here's how we can help you. That's what people are interested. What do you have that can help them get to where they want to go? Our brand is strong and your brand needs to be strong, but your relationships need to be stronger. So I have a, a question for you, several questions. And I'll give you a half second to answer. Is this marketing or sales? Just, just answer in your own head. Is it marketing or sales? First one, estimating a job. Sales, right? It's a specific to a job. Lunch and learn with a prospective new client. Is that marketing or sales? It's marketing. You're developing your brand through a lunch and learn. You're not talking about, you know, a specific job. Maybe you're talking about your company and how you can help them. A bid review. Of course, it's sales. What about a golf outing? You know, you might, and I've spent many hours on a golf course with clients. You develop some of the best friendships that way. But, you know, you spend four hours on a golf course. You might talk about a job for two minutes. The rest is getting to know them, getting that, having them get to know you. It's marketing. Proposal development for a job, marketing or sales? Sales, it's for a job. Uh, let's say you get a new project and you send out an announcement through LinkedIn. What is that? Marketing, of course. If it's not job specific, 
it's brand specific. So there are absolute differences. Like I said before, we're going to be bringing in a branding specialist. Uh, and on the sales side, we're going to dig into how companies sell their work. For example, small companies, like I said, you know, under 5 million, the owner sells the work. And that's just how it goes. Nine times out of 10, a medium sized company, maybe from five to 20. Now you've got estimators. So you have uh, owners and estimators both selling work. Maybe the estimators will send in the proposals, the owner follows up. But then you get to large companies and this is where you usually get a business development staff, a person who develops all the things we talked about earlier, maybe focuses on the major jobs. They set the model for selling, still selling at the local level, but in an organized process developed by the business development teams. Now, when you get into national and public companies, it's driven by BD teams with regional sales managers who want to establish rules, right? They don't let the salespeople go below. They, first of all, the salespeople don't know what the real numbers are, but here's where you can go. And it's all done, um, you know, virtually. It's all done by, by uh, spreadsheet and software. Uh, they want to control the sale. They want to hide the real numbers. And, you know, look, when you have 100 or 200 or 500 salespeople out there, there's got to be control, you know. But let me ask you this. What's the sales model for your company? You know, I've seen too many companies, this really happens, they outgrow their ability to sell effectively. Now, even big companies say, well, wait, wait a second, they're, they're doing $50 million a year. How? Well, they're doing $50 million. Could they be doing more? I don't know. Does their master plan say they want to do more? If so, are they getting the right projects? Are they doing the right jobs for the right customers? Right. If they went to a different customer, could they make a little more money, get paid a little faster? These are all things that that, you know, what happens when a company grows? First thing a, a business owner is going to do. Well, they're going to hire a receptionist because they don't have time to answer the phone. Then they're going to hire a bookkeeper because they don't have time to do the books because they're focused on the business, which is smart. Then they're going to hire a superintendent because now they got not five guys. They got 50 guys in the field and they need somebody to watch them. Quality control. Uh, and production. And now they got an outside accountant doing audits. But what they fail to do sometimes is specialize in the, the art of sales and marketing. You know, well, you know, we've always sold this way. And, and, you know, some companies rely on their estimating staff to sell. And look, some estimators are great salespeople, but many of them aren't built for that and they don't want to do it. So I think. I think that you have to ask yourself if you're a business owner or a manager, how are we selling, right? Are we utilizing those assets? Well, I don't want to spend money for a business development person, but you have six estimators, right? You have six estimators. Now, what if you had five estimators and you made that business development person and you, you changed, you know, you switched from paying an estimator to paying a business development person and you incentivize that person. Now, what happens is that business development person could very well, right, be make your estimators more efficient, number one, right? Bring the best work to them, not have the estimator decide what jobs they're going to take off. Even if you have a chief estimator, right? A business development person will help with branding. They will help with marketing. They will help with, with sales because of that. So you might not add any overhead. You just may reallocate. But when you specialize in sales, everybody gets better.
So to drive that point even further, let me ask you a few questions. Are you bidding work or are you pursuing work? I hate the word bidding and I might even use it now and again because I'm, I'm just used to it. But, you know, I like pursuits because bidding work, you know, if you define bidding, it's like, you know, I'm putting in a, a number and, and that's it. You know, pursuing work, I think involves many, many more phases of the actual, uh, you know, getting an award. You know, relationships are crucial. Your clients have choices. Why are they going to choose you? Um, you know, are you adding value early in the process? And this is, you know, is it the chicken or the egg? Because if you're working with a client through the, are you working with a client through the pursuit stage? Are you doing any budgeting? And some would say, you know, way I wait to see who gets it. Typically, think about it. An estimator, your estimators, or, or if you're an estimator, right? You have so much work on your desk right now, and you've got to get this bid in by Tuesday. And you are, you know, you're you're slammed. So if somebody calls you and say, hey, I need a budget, what's the first thing? You know, the reflexes. Nah, I can't do it. I'll wait till somebody gets it. Then I'll deal with it. Then that's what a typical estimator would do. They would decline it. They got too much on their plate, but think about a budget and the value to a client. It's obvious, right? Uh, what can you get from a budget? You set the budget, right? You're the one working with the client early on to set the budget. You gain an understanding of the job. It gives you a chance to work with the design team. You get to know them. They get to know you. You influence the design to something that suits you where you can. You're developing a relationship every time you talk to the client, right? If there's three GCs bidding the job, you just established three new relationships. Clients don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. It will put you, even in a bid, even if all the process goes through, right? You're gonna say, all right, well, I'm gonna bid this job later. All right, so you're gonna spend, let's say three days bidding the job. Now, if you budget it, you might spend two days budgeting it, the, the drawings aren't done yet. And you might spend time after that as the revisions come out. But if you add it all up, it's not gonna be a whole lot more than if you bid it once. So there's very little additional time. You're just spending a lot more time early, right? But it could put you in a last look position. And by the way, if you have three people bidding the job, one's going to get it. So what does that mean? Not only do you have three new relationships that like you, that know you're good, right? That understand the value you have to them on the next job. You've got two guys to go back to and say, Hey, how did I look against my competitors? That information is critical, but you're never going to get in that spot unless you develop the relationship and you're not going to develop the relationship unless you spend the time, unless they know you care. So, you know, I guess the biggest assumption uh, that, that we're saying in marketing, especially like, have you succeeded in the most important marketing effort there is? What do you think that is? What's the most important thing you can do uh, that markets you to your clientele? The question is, have you executed the work? Have you done what you said you're going to do? That trumps everything. You could have the best number. You could have the best proposal. You might have the best people in the field, right? But if you don't do what you say you're going to do, they're not going to trust you and you're not going to get the work. So 
if I still have failed to convince you that specialization in sales and marketing is necessary, let me break down the components of a, a pursuit the way I see it. You know, a pursuit starts with project tracking, right? What's out there? What's coming? You know what your backlog is because you need to know when, what jobs are going to go when and, and, you know, fill the holes. Which clients do you want to deal with? And, and that all, that's an art in itself. Project screening. You're going to get invitations to bid, ITBs, every single day. They're going to go to your estimators. They're going to go all over the place. Who's screening those? Do you have somebody that understands your master plan, that understands your financial position, your bonding capacity, when the jobs are going to fall, which jobs, uh, what clients you want to go for, what specific scopes of work suits you best, and is it in that job? So project screening is huge. Making connection with the right person in the client's office too many times over the years I've seen, yeah, we're bidding. So in other words, there's a difference between activity and progress. Activity. I got plans and I'm putting a bid together and we're getting numbers out to everybody. That's activity. Progress, are you making the right connections in the people in the office who are actually gonna do the buying, right? Have you set the table? Have you done work prior to this? Or, you know, have you been part of this ITB? All the way through, those things are gonna help you. I'm not sure how you manage that. Do you understand uh, the, the development of the scope? Does it suit your company? What, this is a big one, what's your project strategy? I don't care how small the job is or how big it is. Every single job should have a strategy, right? What are we going to do? How are we going to bid it? Who are we going to bid it to? When are we going to send the numbers in? Um, you know, are we going to give anybody preferential treatment? Are we going to give the VEs up front? Are we going to hide them? There's a million things that have to go into strategy, but uh, too many times there's no attention paid to that. Again, Pro, a progress or activity in progress, yeah, we're getting numbers out and we're doing what the clients ask, but are you adding the best value for your client, which will come back to you? Drawing prep and takeoff, you know, uh, bid reviews. When you have a job, small, medium, or large, do you sit with a representative part of your staff and review the job? Now, reviewing a job is more than just saying, okay, yeah, we can get this much production doing this every single day. Our mandate cost is this, we know that. Does it fit in with the strategy? I mean, you gotta ask yourself those questions you do during a bid review. You're not only looking, there's a couple things about a bid review. A bid review is, is a great way to see if you've missed anything or, right, integrate your strategy to see how you can better bid it. Uh, but it's also a training ground. I'm gonna say, what do you mean a training ground? So when I worked for a public company, we had bid reviews all the time and we invited lots of people, whether they were part of it or not. You know why? Because they learned through the process. They saw uh, something that they've never seen before and they realized, okay, this is how this guy thinks about it. And somebody, you know, halfway across the country is going to chime in and say, you know, I had a job like that before and this is what happened. And this is why I won't do that again. This is the way I would recommend doing it. So everybody on the call learns and is better after the call than they were before the call. You know, developing proposals. I could do an entire episode on just how to develop a proposal. And that'll be part of a future episode, but, but suffice it to say that it's important. It's part of your branding, right? And, and you know, I'll give you a quick example. 
some guys would say, well, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give them a detailed proposal because then I'm exposing myself. I don't think so. What you're doing is you're telling the client that you know the job. You're setting the bar up here. So now you are the standard for comparison. So a guy comes in with a lesser proposal, you've educated the client as to what the job entails. And that client, if they're smart, they're gonna say, hey, by the way, did you figure this, this, and this? And the guy's gonna say, uh, no, but let me get back to you. You don't wanna be that guy. You wanna be this guy. That's why proposal development and a formal solicitation is an art within itself. And this may be the biggest one of all, follow up, follow up. Do you know how many times, I don't know the answer, but I'm asking you a rhetorical question. How many times do people want to sell something? I don't care what industry it is in, and they never ask for the sale. Now you listen to commercials on the radio and I'll say 85% of the time, nobody asks for the sale. I don't know if that's true or not, but I know in our industry, you know, depending again on who is selling the job. So I just listed 10 different items I think are crucial to a pursuit. And I'm going to ask you if you're a manager, if you're an estimator, if you're a BD, if you're an owner, how do you handle it? If you agree with those 10 items that they're important, do you think that's going to be handled by an estimator? No, I don't think so. Estimators are great and you need them, but that's not their job. Their job is to get the quantity and, and all that stuff. So people in business development with the ownership and key staff members can put together the strategy, use that information to make the best proposal. That's, they're the keys to a pursuit. So if you're a small business, you can pretty much do everything yourself. But if you're a medium, large, or certainly a you know a national public company, whatever, you should really strongly consider specializing in business development. If it's an overhead issue, like I said earlier, you know, move the money around, right? Have an estimator do something different and, and bring in a business development specialist. Um, you know, a good offer, a good offer, and I, I qualify an offer as, you know, a proposal to all the stuff we mentioned before. You're offering your services. Uh, a good offer doesn't guarantee a good job, but a bad offer guarantees a bad one. You know, we're going to, in season two, we're going to dive deep into sales and marketing, and I can't wait. It is my favorite subject, right? So stay tuned. Mark Twain once said, and I'm serious, it's the clothes that make the man. Naked people have little or no influence on society. The wardrobe was provided by Benchmark Clothiers, custom clothes to fit your lifestyle. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram at Benchmark Clothiers. And when you go there, tell them Dave sent you. So now we move on to the third wheel, the third basket, and that's field execution. And I said earlier, that your ability to execute, to do what you say you're gonna do is the single biggest branding and market opportunity that you have. Oh, and by the way, that's where you make money, okay? Without that, nothing else matters, again. So field execution is critical. And it, it's, you're talking about project management and field operations. It includes you know, production, quality control, safety, uh, if you're a small business, you're typically doing it as an owner, maybe a key employee, maybe 1 p.m., 
one project manager. The medium-sized company from five million on, you're certainly gonna have a couple of project managers and a superintendent at minimum. Large companies, you have a project executive, which manages several project managers, a superintendent, an assistant super. You're gonna have a safety manager. I remember walking on high-rise work in New York City back in the day, I won't tell you when, um, but it was a long time ago, with hard shoes, a suit and tie, no hard hat, no problem. That's changed, right? Safety is huge. Quality control has always been a big deal. Safety is, is huge now, uh, liability and the cost of it. So let's talk about a project manager. You know, they're responsible for executing the job and they're the liaison between the office and the client and the field. Schedule compliance, product procurement, delivery coordination, change orders, billings, work and process schedules, accounts receivable. A project manager is like a shortstop, right? Everything comes their way, they gotta eat it up and spit it out, like a point guard, you know? Maybe they didn't get the work, but once the work gets handed off, which is, by the way, is a whole other topic, uh, the project manager's job is to maximize efficiencies and profits. And a superintendent manages all manpower and site coordination. They manage production, quality control, and safety. Now, the size of your company, the complexity of your scopes will dictate the roles of a PM and a super. But I have a question for you because it varies. Who reports to who? Does the PM report to the super? Does the super report to the PM? Do they both report to a manager? Uh, you know, I've, I've done it many ways. I think that the superintendent should report to the project manager, my opinion. Uh, some people like it that way, some don't. I worked for a company not too long ago, a uh, really good company, and they, they were influenced heavily by the residential side of the business. And they thought the superintendent should manage the projects, which includes change orders. You know, among the other things I mentioned, right, just change orders. Knowing the scope of work, like I think a project manager on a commercial job should focus on the manpower and the quality and safety. The PM is the guy that visits the job and says, you know what, we're not, this isn't our scope, this is a change order, or keep time on that because we've got we've to uh, ask the, the client to be reimbursed because that's not what we bargained for. Superintendent has so many things that I don't see how they can do that. So in that case, whether you agree with me or not, I'm right. <laughs> so in another case, the owner wanted the superintendent to report directly to him. And, um, you know, he thought because he had a superintendent report to him and a project manager, manager report to him that he would get sort of both sides of the story. But what it created was almost, you know, a, a dissension between the two. They didn't work together. They ended up doing this. And I don't think that was healthy. So different management styles yield different results. I will say this, on the execution of a project, we're gonna have a future episode in season two, and I'm gonna interview really high level project managers, both one in construction and one out, and it's gonna be an exciting and informative session. So now we've reached the fourth basket, the fourth tire, the fourth wheel, and that's administrative support, and this goes for any business, construction or otherwise. And I look at uh, five different parts of that, and that's accounting and finance, internet technology, IT, 
human resources, HR, purchasing and supply chain management, as well as investor relations, which really deals with big public companies, right? So we'll eliminate that for our conversation, but we can agree that everything in sales and marketing and field execution are impacted by both IT and HR and vice versa. Now, in a future episode, I'm gonna interview industry leaders in both areas, no matter how big or small your company is, these interviews will guide you to the best and most current practices in both IT and HR, which are two extremely important pillars of business development. So let's get to accounting and finance, two massively important things to every business of every size and complexity. You know, accounting uh, supports operations. They got payroll, AP, AR, tax filings, P&Ls, all the stuff that really nobody wants to do, but are absolutely essential. You know, small companies, you have a bookkeeper and an owner oversight. That's how that's done, you know, less than $5 million. Uh, not a big deal. Maybe you're having a reviewed statement or, you know, you might want an audited statement if you need bonding. Uh, Medium-sized companies, again, uh, you know, $5 million to $20 million. You're probably going to have an in-house accountant, an independent accounting firm providing you with both reviewed and audited statements. A large company, you're going to have a controller. He's going to have a staff. Obviously, you're going to have a, probably one of the big accounting firms, too. Uh, national public company, you're going to have a CFO, right? A chief financial officer. You're going to have a controller under him, a staff, plus the independent accounting. Now, in a future episode, we're going to hear from Larry Reagan. He's a good friend. And he's a principal at Source One Accounting. He's over 30 years of experience, specializes in construction companies that include financial statements, tax returns, bonding, you know, business sales and acquisitions, and yes, financing. So let's talk about financing. This is the lifeblood of any business, especially in construction. You know, the common question that every business owner manager should be asking, do you have enough available cash to finance a growing business? You know, it's a 60 to 70 day, 75 day pay cycle with a 10% retainage. You know, I've gone through in previous episodes the, the, you know, the model of if you have 10 guys on the job, you better have enough cash, not, you know, to withstand normal circumstances, but you're going to have a clunker of a job every now and then. You might be doing great and your client just doesn't pay. You just don't know. So, you know, is there enough funding to withstand that bad job? How big a job can you take on? How much funding do you have? You know, not if everything goes right, but what if one thing goes wrong? Are you okay? Right? Have you explored creative ways to create cash? Getting paid early for a discount. Payment terms with vendors. Payment terms with vendors. If you go from 45 days to 120 days with a vendor, you're going to get that money before you got to pay it out. It creates cash. Maximizing your schedule of values. I hope that your project managers, when they put together, not the budget, the budget are the real numbers. I'm talking about a schedule of values, that those values are front end loaded. There's nothing wrong with it, right? And you know, you should front end load as much as you can because they're not only gonna pay you late, they're gonna keep 10%. You need to develop that cash up front. So if your material costs you $20,000 for that floor, I hope you're billing more than 20 grand. Now we're gonna do you know, a deep dive in season two on ways to finance your business, no matter what stage you're in. 
Um, so in review, look, business development includes all activities necessary to grow your business. Like I said, last this past season, I had starting a business. And I even mentioned in that episode, I'm not talking about developing, starting a business, starting it right, selling a business, right? But what do you do to make the business valuable? What do you do to get out of the business what you want? That's the business development part. Again, strategic planning, sales and marketing, field execution and administrative support are the components that you should be paying attention to. The companies who embrace these things are typically the ones that make the right move. Those, those that don't are often forced to react to you know, the unnecessary and unwanted situations. Which one do you want to be? So in review, business development includes all activities necessary to grow your business. The four key segments, strategic planning, absolutely critical. Sales and marketing sets up everything. Field execution, it, it, it allows your customers to trust you and you make money. Administrative support supports all of those things. You can't live without it. Your entire staff are components of business development. The companies who embrace this are usually the companies that make the right moves at the right time. They're not lucky, they're smart. They plan, right? The ones that don't are forced to react. Don't be one of those companies. Now, if you want more insight into business development, contact me through my website at adacorp.com. You know, this is the first season of commercial construction, Elevate the Industry. And I gotta tell you, I've had a blast. This has been so much fun. I hope that you've enjoyed the content because after all, I said early on, there's two things that have to happen. One is the content has to be valuable and I have to have a good time. And I can tell you, I'm enjoying the heck out of this. I hope that you enjoyed what we have. We are done with season one. We're gonna take a couple weeks off, but season two is coming. If you subscribe, which you should, uh, you'll automatically get uh, the notice when it's coming. But again, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're going to sign off now. Stay safe and stay tuned. Elevate, 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 All the music for the episodes, including our theme song, Elevate, is provided by DMV producer Trey Skills. If you like what you heard, follow Trey Skills on Instagram at Trey Skills, T-R-E-Y-S-K-I-L-L-Z. That's T-R-E-Y-S-K-I-L-L-Z. So follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Elevate Industry. Check out my YouTube channel at Commercial Construction, Elevate the Industry. Visit my website, adicorp.com, A-D-I-C-O-R-P.com. Go to LinkedIn, search for David Proceda, hit connect and follow me. Please rate, review, and comment on this episode, and I look forward to seeing you next week.